Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome to a special Climate Week edition of our NOW 2020 podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. Through this podcast, we are trying to understand the world better, to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. We are committed to sharing the views of CEOs and other leaders so that we can all learn from their perspectives on how to navigate the future. As we get ready to launch season two of the NOW podcast, let us know if you would like us to send you future episodes as they drop. Just fill out the form on the NOW website so that we can be in touch. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future, and we hope these NOW conversations will help us do just that. This week has marked the start of autumn 2020, yet little of this fall season rings familiar. Whether you're sending kids back to school or stretching out the final days of warm weather, many of our routines are unrecognizable amidst the backdrop of COVID-19. The pandemic has quashed what we once took for granted, like greeting a colleague with a handshake or a carefree afternoon at the ballpark. And if the greatest loss in the last six months was a sense of normal and not a family member, nor a home, nor a job, we were one of the lucky ones. Yet, while we all struggle to make sense of what comes next because of COVID-19, doesn't mean that the problems that came before COVID-19 have conveniently disappeared. And California is on fire to prove it. Breaking news out west where firefighters are battling dozens of massive wildfires. Is the wildfires raging throughout the state. For folks up and down much of the west coast, this has been a week of fire and destruction. The August complex fire has become the largest fire in state history. Never in the American west has so much burned so quickly. Climate change remains one of our world's greatest threats. It makes fires, like the ones the West Coast is battling today, spread more quickly, makes 100-year storms a more common occurrence, and makes the gap in inequality that many Americans are impacted by steeper. Some argue that the damage climate change will cause could make the COVID-19 chaos seem tame, while the fires and the floods we increasingly see at the top of our news feeds has raised awareness of climate change Connecting the impacts of a warming planet to investment risks and opportunities is difficult and often neglected. But in this abnormal fall season, the fires that started in the West Coast are making their consequences felt around the world. What does a wildfire in California have to do with economic growth in the rest of the nation? How does all this impact global investors, and how can we focus on solutions without falling victim to alarm? My name is Karina Funk and I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. We wanted to bring in someone who is uniquely qualified to address all angles of these seemingly intractable questions. We're honored to be joined by Kate Gordon, a foremost authority at the intersection of climate change, clean energy, business, and economic growth. Kate's experience is not as an observer. She is active as a thinker, a leader, and a doer, working tirelessly to achieve a sustainable economic model Given the practicalities of our incumbent infrastructure, cultures, industries, workforce skills, and all of this against the uncertain realities of climate, COVID, and whatever comes next. 
Today, Kate directs the California Governor's Office of Planning and Research. She's also Senior Policy Advisor to Governor Newsom on Climate, and I'm very pleased to say is a former member of our own Sustainable Investing Advisory Board here at Brown Advisory. Welcome, Kate. It's always great to speak with you. Thank you so much, Karina. Great to see you and hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kate, I love to articulate your background because it's kind of impossible to say in one sentence. You've built a career that really seems perfectly curated to adding value in light of the economic and environmental duress that the state of California is in. And this isn't the first time that you've managed through crises. You were greeted by it in your first week of office. Can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. And and uh, first, just thank you again to Brown Advisory and to you, because it's always great to talk to you and uh, and connect with those who are really trying to make all this stuff work out there in the real economy. Um, I started my current role with the state of California running the Office of Planning and Research, which really does long range planning um, and advisory work for the governor and the cabinet. I started this work in January of last year, and the first week that I was on the job um, was the week that PG&E declared that it was going to file for bankruptcy because of the impacts from the wildfires in 2018. And immediately thereafter, the ratings agencies downgraded all of the ratings for our three major publicly owned utilities. So it was this very stark moment where the climate impacts themselves came together with the fiscal impacts to the state and to the budget, frankly, to our state budget of those impacts and sort of all came crashing down together. So really, to me, you know, set the stage, frankly, for the this first term of Governor Newsom's governorship. You must have done some of that scenario planning. I mean, just given your expertise, right? So the bankruptcy of PG&E obviously surprised so many stakeholders, but I would imagine that in your scenario planning, that wasn't out of the question, although perhaps not specifically. Tell me about how this evolved. You know, PG&E or Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, which is our largest publicly owned utility in California, and I believe actually has the largest uh, territory of any publicly owned utility in the country, is interesting in that, you know, from a from a sort of traditional ESG or environmental social governance perspective, they had been really celebrated as a leader for a number of years. They'd really done a lot to, you know, bring down their carbon emissions, to participate in in California's sort of leadership position on climate. What they had not adequately done is to think about the physical impacts of climate change to their actual systems, to the infrastructure, to the grid. And that is something that I think should have been more predictable. Um, As you know, a lot of the work that I've done has been in that space of looking at infrastructure investments, looking at physical risk to those investments. And, And utilities are sort of at the front line of that. They have very expensive, very exposed infrastructure. So I think we could have seen it coming, but one thing I think just is re- I really want to make a point on is, again, they had been seen as a leader in this space, but they'd sort of left out this huge piece of the puzzle. Well, I think we all have a lot to learn from this. And I mean, you're clearly dealing with some mammoth consequences of, of this situation and, and of climate change in, in general. And you went into a situation where people were losing their homes, their jobs, and there was obviously a big loss of investment capital. And this chaos was even before COVID. Now, because of your background and, and my focus on, on the private sectors and hopefully the audience's interests, let's talk about the, more about those investment implications. And to do that, 
let's go back a little further in your career and talk about the Risky Business Project. Um, You were the lead author on a couple of reports. The first one was written in 2014, I believe, which in my humble opinion, were this was the first and the most extensive and the most relevant articulation of the business case of why should businesses understand and take action regarding climate change. Well, thanks for the kind words about the Risky Business Project. First of all, it was a a real labor of love for many people, including our three co-chairs, Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, Mike Bloomberg, and Tom Steyer um, out in California, who I was working with at the time. And what we tried to do with that project was really exactly what you just said, which was to translate what had been pretty much exclusively a science and policy conversation about climate change into an economic and finance conversation about climate change. Um, We had noticed that in the United States in particular, we really had had a hard time breaking through and getting out of the sort of political space on climate change and into just a a data-driven discussion of, you know, what does this actually mean to our economy today and into the future? And what we did in Risky Business was to take very detailed and downscaled climate modeling. So looking at the, the, the physical impacts out through the end of the century, but also in, in the near term, in the midterm, in the long term, taking that modeling, downscaling it to the county level, also adding in a layer of sector-specific econometric impacts from those same kinds of, of climate events in the past. So as a good example of that, one of our big sectors we looked at was, was agricultural production and crop yields. What we did was we looked at, for instance, um, the projections from the science of extreme heat increasing in southern Iowa over the course of the century. And then we looked backward through econometric modeling to say what have been the impacts on corn yields when there have been heat impacts in the past, how can we project that forward given the potential of of extreme heat and the likelihood of extreme heat going forward? That, I think, was the first time that that had been done at that intensity. We took all of that huge amount of data, we took all of that, and then we paired it with a very intensive campaign to have our risk committee led by those three co-chairs, but including, you know, three other former secretaries of the treasury and a number of former CEOs as messengers combined that with a very intensive communications campaign. So the whole thing was like best data combined with best communication combined with the most effective messengers. And I think really made a difference in some of these communities where climate change had just not been top of mind, except as a political issue. Right. Not only that, but I think these reports are still relevant. You and your co-authors did a great job clearly linking climate risk to what's likely to flow through the income statement and balance sheets of private corporations. And you mentioned you know, that galvanized some key messengers and, and messages. So I imagine that that started some good conversations, hopefully, in corporate boardrooms. Tell us how that's been going. Is it continuing? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that Risky Business focused just on a few sectors. Um, it was really, we really focused in on areas where we had really good data and good ability to do backward looking econometric analysis. And in those sectors, we ha- absolutely found that some of the big sectors with the most kind of capital investment in, in what we call place-based infrastructure. So infrastructure that's in a particular place and very hard to move 
think about uh, centralized power plants, think about um, major manufacturing facilities. Those companies really did, I think, move early to start to do much more detailed and sophisticated modeling of the impacts on these investments because they're so exposed. I mean, they, they really, a huge piece of their budget is capital investment. They can't afford to have those underwater on fire. One of the things I hadn't thought about, but, but became a conversation that we had all the time was, you know, on the energy demand side, what you see is because of extreme heat increasing across the country, really in almost every region of the United States, you see increased energy costs as a result of that. Of course, people are doing more air conditioning. At the same time, our energy system is less efficient when it's really hot because our central power plants have to be cooled more often and our transmission lines actually lose power. There's a lot of line loss is what they call it because electrons like jump off of the transmission line when it's extremely hot. So you have less efficient supply, much increased demand, and as a result, these escalating costs. And we're starting to see manufacturing companies in particular really start to take that into account when they're thinking about location decisions of their plants, because all of a sudden energy costs, which were low for a lot of decades, have become a rising piece of their puzzle, and in a lot of cases, eclipsing labor costs, especially with automation. So I think that's a really interesting dynamic. So- those industries make sense as early adopters. They are impacted by climate change today. Has the conversation broadened to other industries? It, it's broadened both in terms of geography. I mean, this is obviously something that is true across the globe. We did risky business from a U.S.-only perspective for political reasons, frankly, but also because the modeling is just incredibly data intensive. It was 20 terabytes of data that went into that project with only a few sectors modeled. But it's become a global conversation and, you know, we're starting to look at global supply chains. Just about every industry we have in the U.S. has global supply chains that have some kind of capital intensive piece to them uh, somewhere um, in the world. And so that's certainly an issue. But we've also seen uh, the technology firms, for instance, which you don't think of as, as exposed, right, as like agriculture they do have buildings and they have people. And what we found is in conversations, for instance, with Google, who uh, we've spent a lot of time talking to, their people are such an important asset to their whole system. Like the, the, the fact that they've got these buildings and people coming in and out of these buildings and, you know, the transportation networks that those people depend on, the broadband that those people depend on, the power grid that those people depend on, all of that is actually part of their operations. So they've gotten much more interested in sort of how do we plan our own design build standards for our buildings? How, do they, how are they getting more involved in climate resilience across the entire infrastructure that their people depend on? Because they're so people-centric as a company. So I think that's an interesting example. And you started to mention some, some of the price signals, like the rising costs of, of energy. And uh, you've California has clearly suffered a lot of price signals uh, that... In many cases, you know, continuing to build as if we're invincible to climate change is no longer an investable option. So here's a leading question. Did those price signals send, were they sent at the right time and directed to the right pools of capital? We're seeing more and more of the price signals become part of the market, but it's still early, honestly. I mean, it, it, California and the wildfires are a great example. So one of the things that happened last year um, is that we saw, and we're seeing it even more this year, um, insurers leaving the market in California 
putting rates extraordinarily high on the secondary insurance market or leaving the market altogether because of the inherent risk of the wildfires in certain regions of the state. We have these very high fire risk zones that California Fire Department, Cal Fire, has identified. The the nature of the kind of fires we now have, which is that they are you know, uh, their combination of very dry conditions from from climate change, um, among other factors, very high winds. Those fires, you know, you can have embers jumping a mile in front of the fire itself, creating some of these wildfires. And even if one house is is beautifully built in what we call hardened, right, against fires, and the you know the five next to it are not, the neighborhood is not going to be saved by that. So we're seeing a real um, impact on the insurance industry and starting to see pricing signals from uh, bond raters and bond issuers as well on the underlying infrastructure. But those are still sort of early signals. I think it's it's starting to get into the consciousness of people making kind of individual home decisions. But more important from my perspective, the state itself, we're starting to think through, okay, how can we start to really build differently? How can we start to really provide incentives for lower risk housing development outside of these zones. But how do we start making more housing in safer areas, more affordable, more accessible? Because ultimately these signals, I think, will be uh, a much larger part of the conversation. I think we're, we're starting to see the ratings agencies, insurers, you know, BlackRock is an, analyzing the physical risk of its assets. I mean, this is becoming part of the sort of mainstream conversation about asset management and material risk. And I think that is going to change the pricing, the underlying pricing of all these decisions. So I want to get to some of those investment risks and opportunities in some of these vehicles, like the bonds you mentioned in a little bit. But first, I want to bring this back to the business case to some of the what you're working on literally today and what you announced this week. Can you tell us... Um, the, the exciting announcement uh, that you just made. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I'll put it in terms, actually, since we were just talking about sort of financial risk and physical risk, you know, uh, under the, the really good framework from the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures that's been put out to look at how we think about climate risk in the financial sector, there's two big types of risk, right? There's physical risk, which I've been talking about a lot, which is risk to things from physical climate impacts. But there's also transition risk, which is what's the risk that you're investing in something or building something that will be stranded or will lose value. The transition risk point has been for a long time top of mind in California. We have groundbreaking world leading standards on reducing emissions. We have been pushing the envelope on new technologies for a long time. Went even further this this week. Let's get over to this huge announcement that will affect us all here in California. Governor Newsom is pulling the plug on new gas and diesel powered cars and trucks by 2035. That makes California the very first state in the entire nation with this kind of ban. Just yesterday, the governor uh, announced a new executive order that requires all new vehicle sales for passenger vehicles by 2035 to be zero emission vehicles. So basically no more sales of, of internal combustion engines in the state by 2035 and then 2045 for medium heavy duty trucks. Huge deal. Mm -hmm. Huge signal yeah. <laughs> um, and a recognition, um, frankly, for us that that in California, as in many places, transportation is our single biggest emitter. Uh, our transportation sector is 41 percent of our carbon emissions. And if you add in our oil production and refining, which we have a fair amount of, 
it's 51%. So it's a very large part of our emissions picture. A big piece of that is vehicles and fuels. And we've just essentially, you know, put our marker on the table on this one. I should give you credit that this actually isn't just well, it is a new announcement, but it's not just an announcement. It's actually implementation of what you started to put in place last year. Is that right? It's directing our California Air Resources Board, which many people know because it runs our cap and trade system as well as our low carbon fuel system, uh, directing them to make this happen. So it's a regulatory direction, which is why it can happen in an executive order. Uh, we're able to do that, I should say, because California has waivers under the Clean Air Act um, and is able to set our own vehicle standards. That is the reason we have the legal authority to do this. It also uh, continues work that we put in place last year in an executive order that that went to another piece of our transportation sector, which is our vehicle miles traveled or how much do we drive. So this order basically combines a couple things, strong standards on vehicles and vehicle sales and operation along with some really good moves forward on transit and uh, active transportation, bike, pedestrian, um, compact development that come out of last year's executive order. Really, it's really meant to be sort of a, a comprehensive look at the entire transportation sector in California and the need to move it forward to reduce that transition risk I talked about and also to send a really strong signal on innovation. How is this executive order an example of governments providing companies with the political landscape that they need to succeed in reaching climate goals? In California, I think on vehicles in particular, um, our market signals, our policy signals are really strong because our market is so big. Just as an example, you know, somebody was 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 t telling me on a panel yesterday or asking uh, you know, why didn't you do 2030? All these other countries have done 2030. Why 2045? And listed out all these countries that had done 2030. And and I think, and, you know, Scotland is on the list at 2032, I think. And and I was doing a little bit of sort of research in real time. And I was, you know, looked at Scotland and Scotland has two and a half million cars. California has 26 million cars right now on the road. And more, in fact, it, that number is growing. It's an interesting relationship between COVID and this conversation, which is that because transit agencies are so strapped right now, they've lost so much ridership, they've lost so much revenue, people are leaving transit, they're buying vehicles. So we have a huge number of these on the road. Um, and so we are a massive market for vehicles. We're a massive market for passenger vehicles. We also have an incredibly active freight and logistics sector. About 20% of all the warehouse space in the country is in California. Huge amount of consumer goods. And so it does send a massive signal to um, vehicle manufacturers, frankly, that this is the market. It's a huge market. Yes, that's very enticing. And among the big corporate commitments that we've heard this week in Climate Week, I mean, you know, Tesla announced significant battery technology improvements. Even earlier this year, Ford had already committed to net zero emissions, but granted by 2050. Now, both companies obviously want to sell a whole lot of electric cars, but they, they can't do this alone. We need the infrastructure for charging, right? So this is a classic chicken and egg problem. Consumers are hesitant to invest in electric vehicles or zero emission vehicles, citing the lack of charging infrastructure, and utilities need to see greater adoption. And this is where the public sector has to step in, right? Like not just with this executive order, but in facilitating financing. Yeah, I think that the, the public sector just has to step in in a couple of places, actually, um, to make this really an accessible and inclusive policy and to scale the market. Because 
New vehicle sales are a small-ish piece, actually. Used vehicle sales are a huge piece of vehicle sales. And so one thing that's in the executive order is the governor directing a number of us agencies to create a zero emission vehicle roadmap that really focuses on that used vehicle market and comes up with better policies for the secondary market. We in California already have a pretty good vehicle retirement and replacement policy that's aimed specifically at the parts of the state that are not in clean air attainment. So the places with the worst air quality, you can bring in your old car and you can get a used or new much, much cleaner car, and you have much higher incentives to have that be electric. So we're going to scale that up. On the infrastructure side, you're absolutely right that without the ability to charge, this is a much harder proposition. And and one of the challenges we've all had in that space is that uh, the ability to charge has to be has to be there for people who don't live in single family homes or don't have garages. So what is the public charging infrastructure piece of this? That's another part of the executive order really calls for that to be scaled up. We already do a fair amount of financing in that space, actually, through our our California Energy Commission, which provides loans and grants on charging. Right. I wanted to mention, yeah, there was, was it last year that it's the largest utility program to expand charging infrastructure? There was a California Public Utilities Commission uh, issue of $437 $437 million, right, for 40,000 electric vehicle chargers, right? That, that's what you're talking about? I, well, I was talking about another one of our agencies, which is the Energy Commission, but both the Utility Commission and the Energy Commission have provided financing. The Public Utility Commission through um, utility-based programs and the California Energy Commission through a program it has called EPIC, which actually does financing for grants and loans for kind of new technologies. So we actually do a fair amount in this space. We also created a new program this past year in our infrastructure bank, which is called the California Catalyst Fund. And what that does is provide a place, a vehicle for low and zero interest loans to de-risk projects in the private sector and help to catalyze private sector investment through various mechanisms from the public sector. That's a program that I'll just be really honest, we in our January budget, we 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 uh, uh, proposed that program and proposed a billion dollars from our general fund to be put into that program. And that was moving forward. And then, of course, the bottom fell out of our budget. Um, we went from a six billion dollar surplus to a fifty four billion dollar deficit in three months mm-hmm. because of covid. And so the general fund piece of that fell away, but the mechanism still exists. And I'm really excited about it because, you know, across the aisle, bipartisan support in Washington for green bank, infrastructure bank type type programs, I think we're really likely to see that kind of program be funded through some kind of a stimulus at some point. And so now we have a vehicle that can receive those funds. I just want to say that some of those debt issuances for this green infrastructure, it crosses the table with institutional investors like, like our firm. We've participated in some of these deals. And frankly, I think that in a lot of institutional investors can stand to invest and benefit on both sides of that equation. So in other words, uh, debt issuances from the, you know, the, those who are building infrastructure and that capital commitment benefits corporate holdings, right, that are helping to develop zero emission vehicle technology, whether it's the makers of microprocessors for electric vehicle controls and communications, or auto suppliers that are enabling the long-term plans for Ford and, and Tesla and others to make vehicles lighter, safer, and drive more miles per charge. So there's an example of, of you know, more public and private partnership, I believe. 
I think that there's there's examples across the board. I mean, you've really pointed to a lot of them, but you know, so we do the market signaling through our regulatory policies. We also do it through our procurement standards, which was a big piece of last year's executive order. We also do them through, uh, you know, where we can, once the policy's in place and the market is moving through de-risking those investments, particularly in places that are underserved in the state. One of the interesting things about EV infrastructure that we've found is that um, although it's a great bet and a lot of folks are investing in it in places like San Francisco, where there's a lot of electric vehicles, the concentration in the state really is in, in the Bay Area and L.A. right now. We don't see a lot of investment out there in, for instance, Kern County, which is an oil and agriculture county, but has the fastest growing city in California in it, Bakersfield. So if Bakersfield as an urban center with a lot of startups and a lot of opportunity um, is looking at EV infrastructure to support this sort of new market, they have had a hard time traditionally getting financing because it's just not seen as a place where EVs are, you know, going to happen or going to scale up. I think this order changes that dynamic and also it's a place where the state can help step in and and you know really push for uh, infrastructure and for investment in some of these areas kate i want to ask you a broader question about investment risks and opportunities i mean in some cases capital is conscientiously being withheld from business activities and projects with a lot of climate vulnerability. I mean, those are the price signals we were just talking about. This can wholeheartedly change the economics of everything from the long-term investments in California's pension funds to real estate, where the private insurers you know, no longer want to be involved. And of course, we just talked about the automotive industry as well. Where should that capital go in practical terms? I mean, where where can it go? It should be easy to invest in climate solutions, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things to say to that. One is, you know, I, I do think we have to guard against this potential outcome of places that are already vulnerable. Um, and I'm thinking globally as well. You know, the global south, already very vulnerable to climate impacts, already have a very high risk of vulnerability from an economic standpoint as well. We have to guard against sort of a wholesale withdrawal of capital from these places. One way to avoid that, I think, is is that the, the, the signals should be sending a message also that we should be investing in sort of forward-looking companies that are doing interesting things on the solution side. And on the solution side, I think sometimes we're a little too narrow. We tend to think about the solution side as being all about technology on the emissions reduction but what's also important is it is technology innovation that's about climate resilience in the face of these impacts. So all kinds of really interesting companies in the in the traditional agriculture space that are looking at water reclamation and desalination and just super interesting stuff going on in ag, ag innovation that I think we sometimes forget to put on the table in terms of climate solutions. You know, Carbon Cure is a great example. They just got a huge Amazon investment. Taking concrete, sequestering carbon dioxide into concrete, turning it into a new building material that we can then use as we're looking at sort of urbanization all over the world. So I think it's it's really important to think about these like different types of companies and different types of solutions that are that are on the emission reduction long term um, climate mitigation side, but also new technologies and adaptation, new technologies and resilience. Yes, there's the high growth startups with innovative, environmentally focused business practices. And but for example, we just participated in a land conservation partnership with the Nature Conservancy that actually gets higher yields uh, through, be, you know, because of the sale of carbon offset credits. But, you know, 
Kate, many of the most significant energy transition projects are highly capital intensive. They require scale and large capital commitments. I mean, it, that's what I wanted to bring up, the broader investable opportunities that include stocks and bonds that are much more widely accessible than private placements. I mean, according to the UN, the required comprehensive multilateral response to fight climate change will amount to at least 10% of global GDP. So we need these basic stock and bond investments to be a part of that solution. Otherwise, we're not going to get to the investments required to achieve our climate goals. Totally agree. And I would also say that it's really important to remember that we already spend a huge amount globally on infrastructure. And some of this is redirecting. It's looking toward climate risk disclosure so that we have more transparency into what, what kinds of investments are being made. It's redirecting particularly public money and and bond capital to projects that are lower risk and higher value from a from a long-term climate perspective. So I think there's a a really really important point to be made about the amount of money that's already moving around the economy that could be spent differently. The other thing I wanted to say about your point about the capital intensity of these projects is absolutely agree and you know, one reality is that some of the companies that have been out there already with the biggest uh, capital budgets are going to be part of this solution. One of the things the executive order does uh, that we just signed yesterday, the governor signed yesterday, is that it makes a strong point about the need for what we call, call and many people call a just transition roadmap. Just transition is an old term. It really just means how do we do a transition from industries that are in some kind of decline for some reason, often it's market forces like globalization, into you know, a diversified set of industries that provides real benefits to people. We, of course, are looking at that in California all the time. We've, we are looking now at, uh, at the real impacts of what's happening in the oil market on our oil and gas sector. Two of our major refineries are closing, actually. Phillips 66 and Marathon are closing major refineries in the state. What they're doing, though, is they're transitioning those refineries to renewable fuel. And I think that's a really important part of the puzzle because oil and gas companies, big agriculture companies, utilities have big capital budgets and R&D budgets. How do we have them be part of the solution and really investing in that expertise, that capital into these new at scale capital intensive projects you're talking about? They know how to do big physical infrastructure at scale. How do we capture that expertise? we can't talk about climate change without acknowledging the additional challenges of COVID-19 as well, and in the same breath, recognizing the impact that both disproportionately have on low-income and folks and, and people of color. And you, you just commissioned a report that sheds some light on how a transition to climate solutions could continue to leave workers and vulnerable communities behind if we're not thoughtful about the economic growth that all of these investments can catalyze. Now, granted, a government's responsibility in serving vulnerable populations is clearer than a company's. But still, is there, you know, what should companies learn from California's trials and triumphs on the broad notion of climate justice? The, the COVID-19 crisis, I think, everywhere and particularly speaking from California, has um, has really put in stark relief the fissures and the vulnerabilities in our current economy. It has demonstrated that the economy itself is not resilient. And that's true from a climate perspective in many cases, but also just from a, a kind of, you know, quality of life, justice, um, and moral perspective. And so we're thinking a lot about this. The report we just put out was a report that came out of a piece of legislation a couple of years ago. 
and asked the state to really examine what has been the job and economic output from our climate programs, particularly our cap and trade program. And we found a you know two, I think, really important things out of that. One, just because something's a green job doesn't necessarily mean it's a good job. Um, and I think that's really important for those in the climate policy world to think about. We need to be going hand in hand on sustainable products that also are creating sustainable jobs with um, family supporting wages, with pathways into into career advancement for, for everybody. Because if that doesn't happen, you know, it's kind of like the classic Ford thing. If you don't um, pay people enough to buy your product, you're ultimately not creating a big enough market for your product. So I think that's really, really important. The second thing is that the report really highlights is, and you know, is that there's really no such thing as a green job. We're talking about greening the entire economy. This is about every sector of the economy becoming more sustainable, becoming more resilient, becoming more inclusive. And as a good example, we found that California's policies since 2006, 60% of the jobs we've created have been in traditional construction from those uh, investments, not boutique kind of green job environmental services, but really basic traditional construction. And that's really important because done right, those are actually family supporting jobs that create really good career pathways through apprenticeships. So I think there's a lot to be learned there, um, particularly in, in ensuring that when we're thinking about climate policy, when we're thinking about economic and workforce policy, we are providing inroads and access from our most vulnerable communities, and particularly those have been left out. Well, in your report, you have some thoughtful me metrics around what you call high road jobs. And I, I think it's that's something that we as investors can really learn from. I mean, on my team, we, we do grapple with the conundrum that companies can make a lot of money by treating workers well, and they can also make a lot of money by exploiting workers. And while both can be true, you know, we look at retention data, opportunities for internal promotion, customer satisfaction, access to benefits, and all this you know, to try to understand if a company is avoiding some of the reputational and financial risks of worker exploitation and, and better yet, seizing the opportunity to offer those high quality careers. Now, we've talked about several industries, and in addition, the technology giants are in your backyard. In thinking about those kinds of companies, what are some of the accountability mechanisms for companies to support their workforce appropriately? Uh, great question. The tech sector is, of course, a huge player in California and particularly regionally in the Bay Area. And it's actually been interesting because the tech sector direct employees of those of those companies have been less harmed by COVID in some ways. They have the highest rates of the ability to telework. So they're not coming into the office, tend to be paid a fair amount. But I'm talking about the direct employees. One of the things about the tech sector that we in California have spent a lot of time thinking about, I'm sure your listeners know this, is, is how many of those employees are contract employees. Most of the contract employees, particularly, you know, in the cleaning area, in support services, in food preparation, in, you know, all of the just myriad supportive industries that go into the tech sector, most are... Um, are not seeing the kinds of wages, the kinds of benefits, the kind of professional development, the kind of career opportunities that the direct employees of those companies are. And so I think one of the things we've been thinking about a lot in California is how do you hold companies accountable for that, for deciding who is and isn't a contractor, which is a legal decision, but also um, for recognizing that that ecosystem of workers is what makes their work possible. 
And I think that goes, that's very similar to our climate conversation. It goes to their whole supply chain. How do you think about the risks and vulnerabilities across your supply chain and make your supply chain more resilient? How do you think about the risks and vulnerabilities across the major asset, which is your people, and how to make that more sustainable and more resilient? I think it's really, really important. We're also starting to see some of the disclosure and some of those metrics take into account you know, labor standards, um, some things that are very quantifiable, uh, health and safety violations, labor violations, um, wages in comparison to the rest of the industry, opportunities for advancement. These are things that are actually measurable and manageable and are beginning by many countries to be seen as just a core part of what makes a company, a high road company, which in our case basically means, you know, more likely to get extra points on on procurement contracts, more likely to be a place where we're going to we're going to look for state doing state business. And ultimately, I think, you know, more likely to be seen as part of sort of a, a, an economy that's really moving forward. Um, it goes to the larger question that many are talking about now about what is the corporate social responsibility? What is the responsibility to be a productive member of a larger society um, as a corporation? How do we break out of this model that shareholders are all that matters? Right. I mean, almost 200 CEOs have signed off on that business roundtable discussion around what the purpose of a corporation is. And shareholders are just one of several stakeholders that, you know, includes customers, employees, supply chain, and communities. And isn't that a precedent for businesses actually wanting accountability to do the right thing, right? I mean, there's there's probably better examples, but I mean, how many companies you know wanted to stay in the Paris Accord, you know, the global agreement that nearly every nation signed to reduce climate change, uh, to reduce climate changing emissions, and to strengthen those reductions over time? Are there other examples of businesses proactively seeking that accountability to do the right thing? Yeah, I think those are great examples. There are lots of them, actually. There's um, on the climate side, there's Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a, a coalition of companies that are kind of holding themselves accountable to to looking really directly at, at, at reducing their risk and, and looking at advancing climate goals. I, I think that the climate metrics are in some ways cleaner and clearer for people um, because it's it's we have a fair amount of predictability on physical climate risk and emissions can be counted. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's been a little harder to think about what those metrics look like on the sort of social and governance side. But, but you know, honestly, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, they're really focused attention to, of course, something that is not new, um, which is decades of impacts from, from s- systemic racism and structures that we've put in place here and in other parts of the world. That renewed focus and attention and critical thinking, I think, is changing uh, this conversation. I think that there there is a, a recognition of a responsibility to our customers, our communities, to shareholders themselves that that companies are, are starting to have and investors are starting to have. The, the challenge, honestly, on both of these is, is, is how do you put that into operation? And I think there are companies that are a little afraid of being the first mover. It's, it's scary to say, 
I'm going to do detailed disclosure of all my risks and all my vulnerabilities if no one else is doing it. That's why the public regulatory system is so important and why so many people have pushed for the SEC to really clarify how climate risk is a material risk, for instance, and how we disclose that and how we talk about that. Because you do need those structures in place. You need consistency. You need clarity in order for companies to feel like they can be part of that solution. Well, it's great to hear that there's so many different activities uh, that are leading to collaboration and hopefully building that future that helps us get past those risks that you talk about, the physical risk, the transition risk, and helps us you know, invest properly in our future opportunities as well. Given all of that complexity, Kate, it strikes me that it's not just California that needs a senior advisor on climate like you, but corporations need a senior perspective on climate action, given their own goals, even if their one goal is as simple as achieving a long-term durable business model. Just really quickly on that, because I think it's really important. The Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure has governance as one of its key areas where companies should be moving. And I just want to underscore that climate change is as significant as globalization when it comes to how we do business and how we invest in this world we live in. It is imperative to have that be part of the conversation at the C-suite level, at the, the manager level, at the director level. I mean, it's critical that that become part of the conversation at a high level um, and, and in, as part of a mainstream approach to investment and to asset management. Because otherwise, if it continues to be a niche issue, companies and investors will see uh, the impacts of not paying attention to those risks. Kate, thank you for sharing that expertise and for sharing your time with us, and for your work that's providing a positive path forward to understand these risks, to create good jobs, economic growth, and investable opportunities that frankly, an increasing number of investors I think can consider. So thank you so much for your important work. I wish you, your family, your colleagues, continued strength, health, innovation, and resilience, all the things that California stands for. Thank you so much, Karina. Great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this special Climate Week edition of the NOW podcast. If you'd like to explore this issue in more depth, visit the Sustainable Investing section of our website, where you can find thought pieces written by our ESG analysts. We look forward to season two of the podcast as we continue our effort to understand our rapidly evolving world. To stay up to date about future podcasts, please fill out the form on the NOW website. We look forward to being in touch. Until then, be well and stay safe.